Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Today is the impact of losing a child, and our guest is Dr. Esther Wender, MD. Dr. Esther Wender's 31-year-old son, Daniel, was killed in a skydiving accident in 1996. Nothing, including her career as a pediatrician, had prepared her for the devastation of that experience. In 2001, Dr. Wender founded the Westchester, New York County chapter of TCF. Since retiring and moving to Washington State, she has found an added calling that of teaching doctors and other healthcare providers about the impact of losing a child and the power of support groups. Dr. Wender has one surviving daughter, Sarah, who has taught her a great deal about what it means for one sibling to die. Dr. Wender is a nationally recognized specialist in the field of developmental behavioral pediatrics and is an active member of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome to the show, Esther. Thank you. Hi, Esther. Well, it's great to have you on the show today. Oh, it's good to be here. You've got such a... a fantastic background and uh, we are very sorry about the death of Daniel and what brings us all together but um, it's wonderful that I know you're out there helping a lot of people well that's uh, one of the things I think that uh, those of us who've lost a child experience is the change in our life that often includes uh, doing something uh, for other people particularly uh, trying to get people to be more sensitive to what this loss is all about. And that has been in itself a healing thing for me to do. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about about when you started doing that as we get on with the show because um, we always want our audience to know because some of them are so newly bereaved that we don't expect you to be going out and doing your own radio show right away or or speaking or whatever. But uh, Esther, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Daniel's death and uh, what happened? Yes, um, Daniel was uh, an experienced skydiver. It, it's something he had taken up about a year and a half before he died. Uh, he was, uh, I don't know if any of the audience know people who do this, but uh, it, it's a very exciting sort of sport. And for him, who always, as a child, was not particularly sports-minded, uh, this was a very exciting endeavor. Um, he was away with his friends, uh, a, a very strong bond between friends who do this together. He was away at a festival um, where the skydivers all meet at one place, and uh, he was jumping from a different kind of a plane, and his parachute prematurely uh, deployed, uh, which caused a twirling uh, and a, a deflation of the parachute. Um, and uh, that's how he was killed. Uh, it was a freak accident. Uh, there really wasn't much anybody could have done to prevent it. Um, he did deploy his uh, his reserve chute, uh, but that also tangled, um, uh, which is what happens when you get a premature deployment of the chute. So he was killed instantly. And that must be, uh, have been early on quite agonizing for you to think about him trying to deploy it and that kind of thing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, you know, I used to run the tape through my head over and over and over and over again. Uh, I was reassured by his friends who were with him that he was so busy trying to handle the emergency that he probably didn't have time to uh, really think about what was happening. 
That's, um, that's what I've been struck by, Esther. It's, you know, in, in our situation, in my own situation, too, with my brother, we need the details of what their last moments were like. And absolutely. The more information we get, the more it's helpful for us in figuring out what they were going through in those last seconds. Yes, yes, you're right. And uh, I talked to his skydiving friends. I went to a memorial skydive that his friends had three months after his death. Uh, but before that, even, I talked to many of the experienced skydivers to find out just that. Um, and you visited the accident site? Yes. And, yeah, we did the same thing with automobile, mm-hmm. um, visiting the accident site. And that kind of thing. Why is it important for us? Why did we do it? Why did I go to the accident site? Why did Heidi go? Why did you go to the site? What are we doing when we do that? You know, um, I know that it's a powerful need. Um, and I guess if you don't do that, you fill your imagination full of things that are even worse um, than than what actually happened. Uh, and I think some of it is associated with the guilt that we all feel. Um, you know, yeah, talk what, about let's talk about that guilt for a minute because people are like, you know, they're like, um, well, they sometimes don't find that, and I'm like. All parents feel guilty because you're supposed to take care of your kids. Exactly. Yeah. My son was 31 years old, and he was living on his own, obviously. Uh, and uh, so, you know, presumably I should be past that stage, but you're never past that stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all uh, feel guilty when our child dies. Yeah. And how about your sibling, Heidi? I think it's a little different because as a parent, you do feel like you should be protecting your children and taking care of them. But as a sibling, you feel like you have survivor guilt. Yes, um, why is why was it my why why did my brother die and not me? Um, what was that all about? Or maybe the wrong child died? Or you know, so it's a, the guilt is a little bit different with the sibling. And, I, and I'm wondering uh, about all this uh, the Virginia Tech shooting. And uh, we've inter- interviewed Columbine people, and Heidi works with the 9/11 families. What about guilt there? What uh, about survival guilt for those students or uh, for the other children? Uh, Siblings, you know that kind of thing. Either of you got a thought on that? Well, I, I, I'm sure that that guilt is still there. I, and I think that particularly with something like that, where uh, the people who were killed were just at the wrong place. There wasn't anything they did, but they just were in harm's way without ever having done anything to to cause that to happen. Uh, that makes, I think, the survivor guilt perhaps even stronger um, because it's, uh, uh, you know, they were lucky and, and their sibling was not. Um, uh, when it's senseless um, like that, uh, I, I think it's sometimes even harder to take. I think one is more likely to become very angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be a lot of anger around that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Heidi? Um. Well, I guess my thought was, with the Virginia Tech tragedy in mind, is when the shooter came in and, and shot a lot of people in the room, and the people that weren't killed, I'm sure are wondering, why did I live, and why was it, you know, how did I live when others had died? And that's, you know, I think with guilt, we need to acknowledge and validate that the feelings we have, the guilt feelings, are normal, and, it, and, it, and that often people have these feelings. And then after that, talk to people about, trying to work through those feelings and get to a different place. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, people will might even experience some anger at their kids because they wanted them to go to a different university. 
I mean, that's how far out it gets because we were interviewing one man who was sorry that he'd encouraged his daughter to go into a certain field because she wouldn't have been at that place at that time, and he wanted her to do something else. So it's strange the way your mind travels. Well, I think we want to feel like we have control over situations in life, and sometimes we really don't. Right. Things happen to people no matter how cautious and careful you are. Yep, and if and if we could fix this, then we could fix other things. And if we could control their what they did, then the world would be a safe place. Mm-hmm. Esther, did you have any thoughts about uh, Daniel skydiving? I mean, what was your yes, deal? Did well, you have any I anger? Just, I was just about to say something because uh, I, I, I did have two or three people that said, you know, why did you let him skydive? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know his father. Uh, his father and I had been separated for many years. Uh, divorced for many years, um, his father uh, felt guilty that he hadn't stopped uh, Daniel from skydiving. My own take on that was that I knew that the skydiving was wonderful for him, um, and uh, I, you know, and, and I really did have that feeling that he was doing something that he wanted very, very much to do. Uh, and it would seem to me to be cruel to have taken that away from him, but and, and other people do stop, didn't have that feeling. And how do you stop a 31-year-old man from That's from right. doing a sport that he loves? Exactly. I mean, you couldn't have. Right. Yeah, so it's just the way we take those things into ourselves. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the age differences. Esther, I know you're um, an expert in uh, developmental behavioral kinds of things. What if I am a child and my sister, say, was killed at Virginia Tech, and I'm 14 years old. Uh, what would you think would might be some of my issues? Well, you identified a 14-year-old in this hypothetical uh, question, and 14-year-olds uh, are really old enough to quite comprehend uh, the finality of death. Um, and uh, with, as with all children, I think the main thing is to be very truthful at first about what it was that happened to the sister. And let them know the details like we're and getting. Right, that's right. right. And, and, the, and the little tiny details. I think so, yes. Yeah. I'm just making this up in my head, but it was, were they shot more than once? Uh, where was the? Yeah. Where did the bullet go? That sort of thing. Um, uh, and why didn't that sis sibling survive? You know, what was it about the shot that, that killed her or him? Right. Um, but... Uh, and the other thing that uh, that any sibling needs to know is, are they safe? Uh, because it's very fear-producing to experience uh, someone else's uh, death. Um, and and be- all because of the Columbine and everything coming in, it, it's making it, I'm sure that 14-year-old could be very, feel very unsafe. Mm-hmm. About, especially about going to school. Yes. Will I go, and all children, will I now go to school and it's unsafe in school? Will people shoot me? I mean... To reassure kids that they still live in a safe environment in a safe world. Yeah. But this 14-year-old who, who were hypothetically saying sister or brother was killed at the Virginia Tech, they already have just found out it's not a safe world. Uh, that's right. And it's something that they need to be reassured about, uh, not just now, but into the future. Um, and the other issues that we know siblings have um, about uh, survivor guilt, uh, about uh, the loss of the future of their relationship with that sibling, uh, uh, all of those issues are much slower to evolve and develop in a young person. Um, and uh, therefore, the thing people have to remember is that this incident needs to be revisited with each passing year because the children change with development. Right. 
and what they experience. For example, we find in uh, support groups like the Compassionate Friends that children of that age very often do not participate and are very reluctant to participate in support groups. But as they get older, that would be something that might be very helpful to them. Right. So uh, we have to offer these things to them, but very often they will refuse at that stage. But don't assume then that that's the way it will always be. Right. And, Mom, you said yeah. something earlier that I wanted to revisit. You said now this 14-year-old knows that we don't live in a safe world, and that's what a lot of the 9-11 kids believe too. However, I've got to come in and say that having a shooting in a school is a very unusual event, and even though this horrific thing happened, we still really do live in a fairly safe world. So I would want to reassure kids that even though this happened at Virginia Tech, it's highly unlikely that it is going to happen at your school. Right, and I think that we need to remind people that the chances of this happening in, what are they, uh, 300 million people in the United States now or something like that, the chances of this happening are, are very small. Right, so we need to go in and acknowledge and validate that their, concern, their concerns, hear their concerns, and then move them to a place where we reassure them mm-hmm. that they are safe. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the younger child for a minute. Uh, hypothetically, again, we have a younger child whose sibling um, was killed, and, and we'll use the Virginia Tech uh, massacre. But we have an audience out there who have children who have been killed, and they have younger children. And I wanted to get to the younger children, and I'm really um, talking. We're really taking this tact for you folks out there. We who have children and you've had a child by so you can pick up some ideas about about what they'll need and where they're coming from so esther what about the younger children let's take a hypothetical child say um say five um and they've had a sibling die what what would we expect from them and we'll just take the virginia tech massacre because that's recently happened and um so we can we can take that as a hypothetical case well, uh, with a younger child, the issues really are quite different. Um, the, the one thing that is the same is that that child needs to be told truthfully what happened to their sibling. Uh, they probably will not uh, uh, need or, or require all the details that we talked about an adolescent child wanting. But on the other hand, you have to be prepared to provide whatever details that five-year-old wants. So what often happens with younger children is that they will ask their own questions as time goes by, and they may pop out with questions at totally unexpected times. Yeah, I remember um, I was working with a 9-11 family, and their little five-year-old boy, and uh, it had been a couple of years, and we went to a, uh, his mother said she was not very happy with him because they went to a restaurant, and all of a sudden, you know, he was three when his dad was killed, and all of a sudden he blurted out, my daddy died, mm-hmm. and that was very upsetting for her. So kids will do that, won't they? Yes, or say, where's daddy, uh, even though they'd been told two years earlier about what Yeah, and keep asking, which can be very painful for, for everybody. But it's, it's going to happen developmentally. Has that been right. your experience, Heidi, too? Well, yes, and I would also say, if we're using the Virginia Tech tragedy as an example, limit exposure to, of children to the media and you know, five-year-olds, because what happens with children, if they see, you know, the media has gone crazy with the Virginia Tech showing it over and over and over, children don't understand that that is one incident that's being replayed. 
they think that the shootings are happening over and over all over the country. That's an interesting point. And it scares them. Mm-hmm. And with 9-11, the kids thought the towers, were, that the whole city was falling down because they kept showing the Trade Center falling mm-hmm. down. Yes. So uh, to limit media exposure, I think, is very important or it could be very traumatic for children. And then there is another important issue with a very young child, and that is uh, their their access to their parents and the, the reassurance that they need from their parents. And this is a tough one, of course, because their parents have also lost a child. And so the parents may be suffering terribly. Um, and... Uh, so that filling one of the needs of a five-year-old child typically will be, again, to be reassured about their own safety uh, and about the availability of their parents. And so if they are surrounded by their parent who is crying and unavailable, um, that can be an issue for them, uh, sometimes pulling other family members in for support during that particular time. Right, and so I think some of the things family members can do are clean and cook and drive and that kind of thing so that the child can be with their parents. And, and sometimes take, to, take the children out to play and take them to events while their parents are grieving. Right, yeah, give them a break. Also, um, it, kids regress. So they might become younger, you know, behave in a younger way, more crime, maybe wetting the bed, maybe... Nightmares. You know, yeah, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. One one has to expect that sort of thing. But then the other issue, and one that people often forget, is that five-year-old will someday be a nine-year-old, and Mm -hmm. then one will be a 15-year-old, and and it all, as time goes by, one needs to relive that story. And they'll be processing it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they process it in different ways. And that's a wonderful thing about writing your story, too, in a lot of details so that they can read it later or can have that information. It's good to talk to them, too, but it's nice to have have that for them, too. Yes. Well, uh, Heidi, you wanted to ask Esther about uh, what she's doing? Well, yes. I know that you're working teaching healthcare professionals about the impact of losing a child, and I wanted to hear more about what are you telling healthcare professionals that they should do and what things have helped parents and siblings? And I'd also like to know, maybe starting with that, how you changed mm-hmm. as a pediatrician before and after Daniel's skydiving accident. Okay, I think those two are tied up very nicely together. And uh, let me start out with what we teach, and then I'll tell you how it changed with me. One thing that we teach is 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 to stay in contact. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest things is is not to uh, avoid talking about that the child who died and not to avoid the parents or the family uh, because you don't know what to say. That's the typical thing. I don't know what to say, the doctor will will, will say, and therefore avoid people. And that's it, it, there's just all sorts of ways that one can make that contact, but the important thing, I think, probably the, uh, an important thing would be for the doctor to make a, an appointment with that family. Uh, and have them come in and uh, let them tell the story, tell what happened. Now, this is assuming that the doctor wasn't involved. For example, it was an automobile accident like your son, Um, and uh, so that there wasn't an illness that the doctor was taking care of. It's hard for doctors to have people come in if they could have any liability, isn't it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? They could. They might be afraid of some lawsuit over illness. Well, hopefully that would be a, a, a terribly unusual thing. Yeah. Um, 
actually when doctors take care of children who have a chronic illness and the child dies of that chronic illness, they often do a little bit better job. Uh, oh, okay, so you're saying, that, yeah, that they'd be, okay, be but more But if they haven't anyway. been there, they just okay. read about it in the newspaper or hear about it from other patients because it's an adolescent, say, who, who dies in an automobile accident, that's the situation where they are likely not to make a contact when they should make a contact. You know, I love the idea of an appointment, don't you, Heidi? I do, too. I was saying that, that just sounds so now, amazing. Now, Doc, uh, Scott's doctor um, and your doc, pediatrician, Heidi, actually came to the viewing. Oh, I didn't know that. And he came with uh, his partner. Oh, yeah, okay. to the, they actually came to the viewing. And I remember that. I don't remember everyone that came. But obviously, I, I hadn't even thought about it till now. That was very impactful for me oh, to have yes. them there. Yes. Dr. Eldridge, Heidi, came had, to the viewing. I had no idea he was there. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and what you report is what other parents report that, that, uh, that it's, it's very important to them. Uh, uh, even though the contact may have been very brief, it's very important uh, to the family, and they remember that. But what a what a generous thing to give up an hour of your time to talk to that family and make an appointment. I mean, yeah. that's 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 pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And I bet a lot of them would do it, but they don't think about it until that's you right. tell them. Or they're very reluctant to do it again because of this, uh, you know, not wanting to talk about something that's so painful. Um, but the other thing is that uh, doctors don't know about support groups. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many groups of pediatricians I've talked to, and this is pediatricians, let alone other kinds of specialists. They've never heard of support groups for families like the Compassionate Friends. Oh my goodness! Um, so, and and they don't know, they don't realize how important and how supportive support groups are. So that's the second lesson that we talk about a lot. Is uh, and of course that's based a lot on my own experience um, uh, because it was so important to me. Um, and here I was, you know, a physician. I was supposed to know all this stuff, but I had never, you know, I didn't know anything. Um, and uh, uh, attending support groups was very helpful to me. Yeah, because one of the things that happens at the hospital, I know I've talked to uh, different staff at the hospital, they support them for a while, but there's no outpatient, you know, thing long term. So they've really got to get into something else. I mean, the social worker may follow them for a month or two, but that's it's even, it. even, Mom, I've heard of a lot of cases where a child dies and that's it. From the moment they die, there's no follow-up. Yeah, well, certainly it was that way with Scott. With sudden death, there's no follow-up. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's the other thing that we teach uh, in this, these conferences with doctors is that um, you may have some idea of what to do in that immediate uh, time, but the families will suffer for a long time afterwards. Uh, one of the things to do, for example, for siblings is to put a picture of the deceased child in that sibling's chart with an indication of the time, the year, and the date that they died as a reminder when you see that sibling back for follow-up care uh, to go through the issue of what happened. To well, can you imagine how great it would be, Heidi, for a sibling to have your doctor open his thing and there's a picture of your brother? It would be very comforting. I mean, that, that would be an amazing thing, just to stick that in the chart if they did nothing else, wouldn't it? Yes. And it does remind them uh, sending out a card at the anniversary of the death is sometimes uh, something that certainly a doctor's office can do. They have uh, ways of uh, keeping track of those kinds of dates. Even your dentist, they remind you to get your teeth cleaned. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the things uh, the, that we emphasize. Um, what uh, great ideas. Yeah, because I would think it, that it would be more common that a doctor just doesn't ever bring up the child again. Right. And it's business as usual. Yes. 
And for the family, it won't. It's never business as usual again. So that's right. It would be odd, you know. It's like the elephant in the room that nobody talks about. Exactly. So Esther, what if I'm a bereaved person and my kids are still going to the same pediatrician? I've got a couple of other kids, and my what can I? I've heard this now. What can I do with my pediatrician? Can I talk to him and make these suggestions, or do you have an article that I could take to him, or what would you suggest to me? Well, this article, uh, the, the, a colleague and I uh, were interviewed at, l- at length for an article that appeared in the American Academy of Pediatrics newsletter called AAP News, uh, and it talks about all of these issues. Um, that would be if they could get a hold of that, which is on the website for the Compassionate Friends. It's www.compassionatefriends.org, and there's a section a link on the home page to, uh, it's called Grief in the News, uh, and if you click on that link and then go to the article that's uh, titled AAP News, you will see this article. Uh, and probably if uh, you could download that um, and uh, take that with you. But I would think yes. I think it's perfectly appropriate to mention that uh, when you're at the doctor's office if the doctor hasn't said anything um, and doesn't seem to know what to do to make those suggestions. I think most parents wouldn't be able to do that right away. They're too full of their own grief at first. But I think a little later on they might very well do that. And I think if a doctor's saying to you, now how's your daughter been? And you can say, well, you know, she's, and she's sitting there. Well, she's, she's, been a, she's had a hard time because, as you know, mm. her brother was killed or her, you know. Yes. To remind yes. them. Yes. I think those are, those are great ideas, and we'll try to see if we can get that article put on our blog, too, so that people can uh, look at that. But go to the Compassionate Friends website, as um, Dr. Winders said. Well, that's a great idea. Now, now you were going to talk a little bit about how uh, your son's death changed you as a pediatrician. Um, in many ways, of course. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I didn't know about the Compassionate Friends. Even though I'm a pediatrician, I am specialized in developmental and behavioral issues. Uh, it, someone else had to tell me that. Uh, once they told me, I made a contact, and then I started attending about six months after Daniel's death. Uh, and it was just enormously helpful. Um, so what, what is helpful about group? Here you are, a professional person, and, you know, what was helpful? One of the things, one of the biggest things for me is being able to tell my story mm-hmm. over and over again. Um, uh, being able to tell my story, being able to express my feelings of guilt, uh, being able to, uh, I, I sometimes refer to myself as I felt like damaged goods um, in the sense that all around me were intact families and I had lost a child and uh, every parent I think experiences that people start asking you how many children do you have Um, uh, people start having weddings graduations uh, when they greet each other they all talk about how their children are doing Um, those kinds of situations were very difficult for me at first and being able to talk about that at the support group was very helpful and then everyone else says oh yeah that happened to me or different people in the group chime in and uh, it's kind of an amazing amazing thing it normalizes what you're going through well I feel very connected to Sarah because we were both adults if you can call being in your 20s an adult I mean I was 20 so I feel like you know I was a young 20 um, and Sarah was 29, and we were both adults when our sibling died. And I feel in the world at large that there is a hierarchy of grief, unfortunately. And I feel within sibling loss there even is. And for some reason, people assume that because I was not living at home at the time, my sibling loss must not have been as important or as painful 
as another sibling that had been at home, and that just isn't true. It was very, very painful, and, you know, to lose my brother. So I don't know if that has been Sarah's experience or not. Oh, uh, certainly. Uh, and um, uh, one of the things that uh, that she has pointed out, and I've seen it, um, that you lose a history mm-hmm. with your sibling. Your sibling is someone you grew up with. You have secrets of things that you did as children together, things that you did that your parents don't know about, um, things that you talked about. Um, and although you fought and were jealous of each other, you also have an enormously close bond with a sibling. Um, that, that And you lose that history. Uh, you don't have that anymore to, I mean, you obviously have what you had in the past, but um, you don't have that for the future. And you also don't get to tease about your parents anymore and their faults and foibles and all that kind of stuff. You don't have anybody that you can joke about. You've got to be well, loyal you to your call. parents. You can call and say, okay, you know what, Mom and Dad are being a pain in the neck right now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure as uh, as I get older and her father gets older, uh, it's going to be not being able to share that experience. Um, um, but it, it, I particularly noticed this at a family reunion that I attended with Sarah uh, back about oh, five, six years ago. And uh, I had my nieces and nephews there, and they were doing some sibling talk, and I realized that that was something that Sarah couldn't do anymore. Uh, uh, and uh you know and it made me very sad for for that particular loss um because she now is the, uh, the remaining child that's right mm-hmm. and there's some pressure in that she's got to be the one who's got to be there for her parents when they get older and whatever yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah so so that that is one issue of course the other issues uh, you know, she's out on her own as an adult in the world as Heidi is at this point and uh, all of her encounters with people is the same thing that parents experience. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Um, you know, and uh, that question that gets asked of her, and uh, she has to make decisions about what she tells people. How do you answer that, Heidi? It's it's very hard, and I'm sure it's hard for Sarah. And you know, the thing about it is, I I have two surviving sisters, but. I, Scott was my only brother, and I feel like not to mention him is to deny his existence. Yes. However, you get to a situation where sometimes you kind of assess the situation and think, do I want to get into this right now? Mm-hmm. And there are times where I'll just say two sisters, and then you feel guilty. Yeah. So it's kind of a catch-22 of when should I say it, when shouldn't I, and how much do I want to disclose to somebody. And also, another issue is, and I'm sure Sarah encounters this, when you do say, I had a brother, but he died, people say, oh, that must have been really hard on your parents. How horrible for them. Mm-hmm. They don't really acknowledge and recognize your, your mm. loss as a sibling. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if there's an anniversary or what, you might get a card as a parent, but the siblings probably aren't going to get one. Mm. Well, I'm impressed, Esther, that you put your daughter, Sarah, into our introduction and that you talked about how much she's taught you because I think often siblings get left out of these kind of things. Yeah. Sarah and I became very close after Daniel's death in a way that, um, I mean, we obviously, mother and daughter were close before, but it was a new kind of closeness. Um, and it was partly because more than anybody else in our lives, we could talk about Daniel. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a lovely thought, that it, it can bring people closer together. Well, it's almost time to close our show. And Esther, I wanted to know if you had any parting comments. Do you have a favorite comment that you give or a poem or anything that, any thought you want to leave our audience with? Um, 
I, I wanted to mention one thing about the, the teaching I do with pediatricians. I always bring a family in to interview in front of the group. And um, it's, I have no trouble finding the families because people always are, 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 uh, want to talk about their child. Uh, but it's a powerful exposure for the doctors in the audience. I can imagine it, it must be. How would people get in touch with you if they wanted you to come and maybe speak to their medical community or their group? Well, uh, my email address probably would be the best way. Um, shall I give that? Sure. Uh, it's Winfried. It's spelled W-E-N-F-R-I-E-D at earthlink.net. Okay, and if you uh, don't get it off there, we'll put it on our website with one of our contact people. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Esther, okay, we'll put it on there. Well, it's time uh, for us to close our show, and I want to thank Esther Winder. It's just been wonderful having you talk about the impact of losing a child, Esther. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.